you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Luke chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. We're going to be covering some of the same material we covered last week, or same passages, uh, from a little bit different angle. Uh, this is what we do here at uh, Woodland Hills. If you're visiting, you might want to know this, we just believe in passionately worshiping God and then passionately breaking open the Word. Um, what you need to know in particular about this message is this. I want to say it as sort of a preamble to it. Uh, there's a lot of good entertainment out there in the world. Uh, you know, there's a lot of good entertainment movies. There's you know, some good movies and plays you can go to and concerts you can go to and choirs you can go to and rock concerts you can go to and, and funny stuff you can go to. There's a lot of good entertainment out there, and, and that's fine. But this is not that. Amen? Uh, some people kind of think that it's supposed to be entertainment. Uh, but see, this is about the kingdom. And uh, so uh, we, in our messages, don't feel any pressure to try to be entertaining. We, we just like to crack open the Word, and we just, uh, you know, verse by verse, go through the whole thing. Uh, today's message, I'll give you a forewarning, is going to be rather condensed or thick, um, challenging. So put on your thinking caps. We're going to delve into some stuff. In fact, we're going to, I'm going to, you know, uh, we're going we're to learn some Greek here today. You want to learn some Greek today? I already learned some Greek. Uh, that's good. Um, someone said I should retitle this message uh, my big fat Greek sermon because we're going <laughs> to... So I don't want to do that. But, uh, okay, get ready for some uh, challenging stuff. But it, it is so important. It's so important. Uh, and so it's worth really wrapping our minds around. Okay, let's... Oh, there you go. Boo, boo. Okay, I got the message. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We talked about that last week. And the Holy Spirit was on him. We talked about that last week. And it was revealed to him that he would not, uh, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. I want us just to focus on that phrase, the Lord's Messiah. What does that mean? Uh, let's pray for this message. And uh, as we pray for this message... In fact, well, you know what I want you to do? I, I, I would like you to, if you don't know the, the name of the person or you forgot the name of the person to your right and to your left, we just get the name and introduce yourself and then we're going to spend a moment quietly praying for them on your right and your left. Go ahead and do it. Ah, let's be friendly. Let's love one another. All right, got it? Now, now, as you're sitting there, because I, I, this is our, part of kingdom training, we want to be people who, in the privacy of our brain, are blessing people all the time. So just take a moment right now and pray blessing on the person on your right, and then pray blessing on the person on your left. Pray that, that they'll be blessed in every way, and that their minds and their hearts and their spirits will be open to receive what God has for them here this morning. Just take a moment and pray. Bless the person on our right. Bless the person on my left. Open their minds, open their hearts. In every way. Father, we just thank you that you've given us authority as kingdom people through the power of prayer. Right now, the world is being changed a little bit. The person to our right and the person to our left is being changed a little bit because of the power of prayer. For the prayer is powerful and effective, your word tells us. Uh, Lord, we pray that we, our hearts and our minds would be open and attentive uh, to dig into your word, to chew on some stuff, to grapple with some stuff, Lord God. Use it to build the kingdom in our lives so we leave here uh, better informed but more transformed than we were when we came, came. Let it be done in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. 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 The Lord's Messiah is what I want to be talking about here. One of the things you find in, in, in Scripture, because it characterizes God, is this. 
Uh, you have a lot of promises and a lot of fulfillment of promises. But more often than not, it happens that when God fulfills a promise, the fulfillment goes beyond what he promised, or at least beyond what people thought he promised. God overfulfills promises. This is true with this concept of the Lord's Messiah, the Messiah. There's a lot of promises in the Old Testament about who the Messiah would be. When the Messiah actually shows up, he overfulfills those promises. Uh, Jesus is not quite what people thought the Messiah was going to be because he was far beyond what they thought the Messiah was going to be. That's why a lot of them missed it. Uh, the concept of Messiah in the Old Testament uh, really centers around three themes. On the one hand, people believed, because it was foretold, that the, the Messiah would uh, be a priest, a, the, a priest to Israel. He would mediate the relationship between God and Israel. He'd stand in the gap between God and Israel. He'd represent God to Israel, and he'd represent Israel to God. It was also prophesied, and people expected the Messiah to be a warrior. He would come, and he would uh, free Israel from uh, its oppression to, to pagan empires, which, as we said last week, uh, they had been under uh, the pagan oppression for uh, eight, nine hundred years, uh, and they were looking for a Messiah to free them. And finally, they believed that the Messiah would be a king, a D Davidic king, a king like David, a son of David, um, and that he would rule Israel in truth and in justice. That's what they were looking for. Now, when Jesus shows up, he fulfills those promises, but he does it in a way that's far more profound and actually more beautiful than anyone was expecting. So Jesus shows up, and he is a priest. He is a priest. Uh, but he's not just a priest of Israel. He's a priest of the whole world. Uh, and he's not just a priest who offers up sacrifices for the world. He's a priest who is the sacrifice for the world. God overfulfills the promise. When, Je when Jesus shows up, he's a warrior. But he's not just a warrior that liberates people from political oppression far more profoundly. He's a warrior, and not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And he liberates us from cosmic oppressors. Uh, he doesn't just uh, free us from these particular oppressors, but rather from the spirit of oppression and the spirit of bondage and the spirit of captivity. And so he frees the entire human race from those diabolical powers. And when Jesus shows up, he's a king, but he, he's, he's more than a king. God overfulfills the promise of a coming Messiah king. Uh, he would be a king over the entire world, not just over Israel. And he would rule not by the power of your political kings, but by the power of self-sacrificial love demonstrated in the manger and demonstrated from a cross. What a bizarre king he is. He reigns with outrageous love by winning the hearts of people. So, so Jesus surprises people because he goes far beyond what they thought a Messiah was going to be. But perhaps, in fact, undoubtedly, the most surprising aspect of, uh, of, of the Messiah once he comes is this. We learn in the New Testament that not only would the Messiah be anointed by God, that's what the word Messiah means, by the way. That's what the word Christ means. He's the anointed one. But not only is the Messiah an anointed one, the Messiah, we learn in the New Testament, is God himself. God himself becomes a human being. God himself is robed in flesh. No one was really expecting this. There were hints of it in the Old Testament. You look at Isaiah 9, 6. It says that he'll be called the Prince of Peace, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. But no one really kind of noticed that. Zechariah 12 talks about Yahweh, who says, You'll look on me whom you have pierced, referring to the cross. 
a prophecy 800 years before the crucifixion ever happened. But again, it, that didn't grab people's attention. They really weren't expecting God himself to become a human. In fact, a central part of, of uh, first century Judaism, Judaism was the conviction that God and, human are, God and humans are in two entirely different categories, that, that God can't become a human. So when Jesus shows up as, as uh, God, it, it, it goes far beyond anything that they were really expecting. Now I want to talk about this idea of the Messiah being God himself. And I honestly don't believe we could talk about a more important topic than this. This is the most important doctrine of the Christian faith. On this, everything hangs. Uh, but not only is this the most important doctrine of the Christian faith, it is really the most attacked doctrine of the Christian faith. In the culture at large, at least in our culture at large, most people respect Jesus. You get that. All the polls show that. Most people respect Jesus. But they respect him as, as, as a wise man, or they respect him as, as a, you know, the, in the New Age crowd, he's, he's an enlightened master, uh, he's an ascended master, or something like this, or they respect him as a guru. Uh, and, uh, but but the, the, the belief is that Christians go too far when we claim that he's God himself. Yes, he's up there, he's wise, he's spiritual, he's enlightened, great teachings, whatever, but he's not God himself. And then on top of that, you've got, uh, you know, folks like, you know, the, 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 the crowd that goes marching two by two to, the, to your doors once in a while, knocks on the door from the Washtower and Tract Society. And uh, they want to grab your ear, and they want to tell you that Jesus is, is more than just a human being, but he's not God. He's an archangel. Uh, he is a God, not, not the God. And, and uh, they can confuse some people's minds. I've had several people in the last year who have gotten kind of confused by their dialogues with Jehovah Witnesses. Wonderful people, and I'm going to say a few things uh, against their translation of the Bible, but I don't mean it against Jehovah Witnesses themselves because I, I respect their sincerity and I, I ascribe unsurpassable work to them. But their, their translation of the Bible really gets under my goad. Uh, and then, of course, you know, to add to the confusion, we've got the Da Vinci Code coming into a theater near you uh, this, this May. And uh, Dan Brown's novel, which is going to be made into a movie, is, is an excellent novel. It's a good story. It's got everything going for it, intrigue and all of that, conspiracy. But, but then he launches off into his history thing, and he claims that, that the idea that Jesus is God and that he's supposed to be worshipped as a, as a sort of second and third century church invention. And the original Jesus, he tells us, uh, the, from the Gospels of the Essenes, even though they existed way before Jesus ever came around, his history is so confused. Uh, by the way, we're going to have a, a question, a Q&A session on the Da Vinci Code coming in May, because this is going to screw up people's brains. But, um, so, you know, he, he tells us this, you know, that, that this is a, a later church invention, that originally Jesus wasn't thought of as, as divine. So, so there's a lot of confusion out there in, in the minds of people about who Jesus is. It doesn't get any more important than this. Uh, this is central to everything. How you, how you view Jesus, who you think he is, affects your view of God, your view of yourself, your view of the world. It really, it, it really is the, the, the center of the whole salvation good news message uh, uh, of the Christian faith. I honestly believe that this is the only thing worth talking about to non-believers. Uh, when, when you're sharing the gospel, I really encourage you to stay centered on Christ. I mean, people, 
I sometimes want to get into all these different issues, you know. Uh, and you end up debating non-believers about, you know, how literal or figurative is Genesis 1 and how do you combine it and com- uh, reconcile it with uh, evolution and, 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 and uh, what do you do with, uh, you know, the book of Revelation and the Left Behind series and, and what do you think of how literal this is or how figurative this is or, or what's your political positions on this, that, and the other thing. And, 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 and so often we, we bite the bait on that and we put a bunch of hoops that people got to c- jump through in order to enter into kingdom life. I really encourage you. This is what I do. I just say, you know, those are important and interesting issues, and people have a lot of different opinions about that. And, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of a simple guy, and I don't really get into all that too much, although it's fun to talk about. But you know, all I know for sure is that, 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 that I, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of my life. And uh, can I talk to you about that? I, I would really like to, to share with you why I believe that, that he's Lord. Uh, keep it centered, you know, because Honestly, if, if, if Jesus Christ isn't your Lord, who cares whether you're right or wrong about Genesis 1? It, it's just, you know, now once you're in the kingdom and you're enjoying that abundant life that Christ came to give you, now we can talk about all that fun stuff. But to make it as a sort of precondition to entering into the kingdom life is, is just not wise. This is so central. And so I want to hear it very succinctly, uh, try to go through the New Testament evidence about Jesus being God. I'm going to warn you, uh, this is going to be dense. Uh, we're going to go into some of the original Greek, but I, th- it doesn't get more important than this, and it's worth struggling with uh, to really stretch your mind on. I encourage you to take notes if you've got a pen and paper with you. Uh, if you only know 25 verses in the Bible, learn the 25 that I'm going to be giving you right now. All right? And, and if you're going to learn any Greek in the Bible, learn the Greek I'm going to give you right now. The first two passages I want to look at, I'm going to give you getting into the Greek, and I'm going to be contrasting the Christian view with the New World Translation, which is the translation of the Jehovah Witnesses, the Washtar and Tract Society. Not because I'm out to bash them, but just because I'm out to communicate truth, and they happen to be a spectacular example of, of not getting it right. The, the first passage that really explicitly, <laughs> but I love them, I really do, and I'm going to warn you also that on this particular issue, to be honest with you, there are some things that really do get, get under my goad. I, that, that really just, is that the phrase, get under my goad, get my goad, get, my, uh, get under my skin, get under my skin, get my goad, uh, irritate me, uh, kind of, I, I, okay. The Da Vinci Code, how you say it in English? I, uh, I don't know. Uh, here, I'm going to tell, talk to you about Greek and I don't know English. This is great. Uh, what is a goat? It, no, that's not good. I, I don't even know what that means. The first, okay, so when it comes to the New World Translation and the Da Vinci Code and some of this stuff, it just gets me animated. Uh, so, so, but it's not that I'm, I, 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 I love Dan Brown and I love, the, you know, okay, so just, just know that. I'm dis- discriminating, I'm discerning things. I'm not trying to uh, jump down their throats. Okay. First passage is John 1, 1, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And look at this, and the Word was God. The Word was God. Looks to me like it's saying the Word was God. I may be wrong on that, but it looks like it's saying the Word was God. And this is clearly talking about Jesus Christ. If you look down in verse 14, it says that the Word was made flesh, and he's talking about Jesus Christ. Now, the folks who come to your door from the Washington Tract Society, they have their own version of the Bible, and it reads like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. A God. Not God with a capital G, but uh, God with a small g. 
uh, the first time, I was a brand new Christian. This is like in the 1974 stuff. I just had committed my life to Christ. And some Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door. And uh, we start talking about things. And uh, they bring out uh, their Bible. And they say, well, no, Jesus wasn't God. He was just a God, you know, like an angel uh, of sorts. And I go, why do you think that? And here's what they said. They brought out a little Greek. It reads like this. Here's the Greek. Actually, that's not Greek language. That's a, a transliteration of the Greek. I had the Greek alphabet language up there last, last night, but then the computer didn't recognize it, and I pulled up the screen. It was blank. So this is, a, this is a phonetic transliteration of the Greek. In the beginning, arche, was the word, hologos, and the word was with the God. There's a, there's, there's a definite article there. And, look, at there's no definite article there. God was the word. And so the person says to me, hmm, now why do you think that there's a the before God uh, in the first instance, but not a the before God in the second instance? Why do you think that is? And I said, I don't know. And they said, well, I'll tell you why. It's because you've been deceived, and, and, and uh, you've been given some false doctrine. We're here to give you the true doctrine. The, the point here is this. They argue that uh, if you have a the before God, then it's a capital G, the one God, the God. But if you don't have a definite article, then that means it's indefinite, which means it's an a. Uh. So you have a God. So the word was a God, but the God that the word was with was the God. That's the argument. Are they right? No! The basic response, there's a number of things we could do. We could talk about Cowell's grammatical rule or whatever. But the simplest way to get at this is this. In Greek, or at least in common Greek, the Greek that the New Testament's written in. It's called Koine Greek. You don't need a definite article before a noun in order to make it definite. If the noun is a well-known noun, you, you can use a definite article or not. For example, they could say, the president is coming, or they could just say, president is coming, because everyone knows that there's only one of them. And so it is with God. In fact, in the New Testament, more often than not, God doesn't have a definite article before, before it, um, I, I, and yet it's referring to God with a capital G. In fact, in the New World Translation, the Jehovah Witnesses translation, they translate all the other instances where God doesn't have a definite article as God with a capital G. Only here do they use that as a reason to, capital, to, to uh, translate it with a small g just to give a couple of illustrations. In John 1.12, here's a New World Translation. It says, as many as did receive him, to them he gave authority to become God's children. Technotheu. Look it. No definite article. There's no the there. John 1.13. They were born not from blood or from fleshly will or from man's will, but from God. Capital G. Ah, no definite article. Verse 18. This is all in chapter 1. No man has seen God at any time. Look at no definite article. And yet the New World Translation doesn't translate. If they were consistent, they should have said, no one has seen a God, or we're born not from our own will, but from the will of a God. But they don't do that, because they understand that in Koine Greek, you don't need a definite article. Why do they do that in John 1.1? I'll tell you why they do it in John 1.1. And again, the people who go door to door are just being very sincere, but I'm a little ticked off with the people who call this a translation. <laughs> the reason they do it in John 1.1 is because it doesn't agree with their theology. But in fact, in the Greek... Here we have Jesus Christ said he was with God and he was himself God, capital G. Not a God, not an archangel, not something else. He was God, capital G. Amen. Another passage. All right. We're getting in the Greek. One, one more little bit of Greek stuff here. In Titus 2.13. 
It's, uh, Paul talks about how we should live while we wait for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Everybody say our great God and Savior. Who is he? Jesus Christ. Who, and it's in the singular there, who gave himself for us to redeem us. The passage says that Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. Now, the New World Translation says this. While we wait for the happy hope. Looks like there's a happy hour coming. <laughs> happy hour is coming. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> While we wait for the happy hope and glorious manifestation of the great God and of the Savior of us, Christ Jesus. See, they want to they argue that God and Savior are two different beings. Jesus is the Savior, but Jesus is not God. And so that's their translation of it. Now, are they right? Let's look at the Greek. Let's look at the Greek. Here's what it says in Greek. The glory, we're waiting for the glory of the great God and Savior of us. Humon, Yesu Christu. We're waiting for the, great, the glory of the great God and Savior. Look at it. There's no definite article there. There is no the there in the Greek. Why is it there in their translation? Because they put it there in their translation, but it's not in the original Greek. And the reason they put it there was to drive a wedge between God and Savior. Here's the rule. It's called Sharp's rule. And they, see, they have to put a the in there because according to Sharp's grammatical rule, this is a simplified version of it, but it says this. When you've got one definite article, isn't it great that you can go to church and learn about Sharp's grammatical rule? Okay. When you have one definite article, which is a the, and it precedes two nouns, God and Savior, without an intervening definite article, the, in other words, there's not a the between God and Savior, when that happens, the two nouns must refer to one subject, and Paul tells us who it is, it's Jesus Christ. Amen. And see, the, the, the reason why it gets my goad and gets under my skin uh, is because the people who translated this version, and my whole point here isn't to bash this version, though I want to bash the version, uh, it's really not a translation. They had to know Greek well enough to know how they had to distort it in order to preserve the doctrine that they're holding. But, because if you don't have a the there, then the Greek requires that you hold that God and Savior are one being, and then Jesus Christ refers to both God and Savior. We're waiting for the, okay, one definite article. Now, great God and Savior of us. That's one being that's covered by the the, and now he names him Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. He's Lord of lords and King of kings. He ain't some archangel, some mediatory being, some great guru, some wise teacher, or anything like that. Oh yes, he is wise and all of that, but you're not coming close to ascribing to him the dignity that is due his name until you're willing to ascribe that he is Lord, that he is God, the great Lord and the great God. Amen. Amen. But we're just getting warmed up here. There's a lot of passages that call Jesus Christ God. For example, in John 20, uh, verse 28, uh, this is where Jesus was uh, he resurrected from the dead. Thomas didn't believe it. Jesus shows up. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, let's all say it, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want us to notice this. Jesus regards Thomas' profession, my Lord and my God, as a profession of faith. What it is to believe in Jesus, from a, from a New Testament perspective, is that you believe that he's Lord and God. Anything else is not New Testament faith. Paul says this in Romans chapter 9. 
He says, he's talking about Israel, and he says, From them, the Jews, is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. He is God. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 1. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. He's quoting Psalms 45. And the psalmist is ascribing it to Yahweh. And Yahweh is just another uh, way of, 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 uh, of, of saying Jehovah. And people say it in different ways. It's the God of the Old Testament. Psalms 45 is to the God of the Old Testament. Go back for a second here, Dan. Uh, the, uh, Psalms 45 is uh, with the God of the Old Testament. But here, the author applies it to the Son. About the Son, he says. He's talking about Jesus. Your throne, O God, will, be, will last forever and ever. Not O angel, not O wise man, O God. Jesus Christ is God. Says this in Matthew chapter 1. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Doesn't mean angel with us. Doesn't mean archangel with us. Doesn't mean wise teacher with us. God with us. And so over and over again in the New Testament, we find the very title God applied to the person of Jesus Christ. To say anything less about him is not to give him the honor and glory that is due his name. But it's not only uh, explicit passages that apply the title God uh, to Jesus that tells us that, in fact, he is God. We find throughout the New Testament, the claims that Jesus make shows us that he saw himself as God incarnate. Only have time to cover a few. Uh, In John chapter 5, Jesus says this, The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Why? So that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Just as. In fact, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Enter into this. This is wild. Jesus is saying, the reason why God's entrusted me with everything, including the judgment of the world, is because he wants all to honor the Son just as you honor the Father. If an angel or a human being were to say that, it would be blasphemy. Uh, what would you think of me? I don't care how wise you think I am, how spiritual you think I am, how ascended masterish you think I am. Uh, I don't care if you think I'm an angel that descends from heaven. You know, no doubt that's pretty close to true, I suppose. But no. Uh, okay, but you know what? What would you think? I don't care what you think I am. If I stand up here and say, you guys, okay, look, at, I just want a little respect here. Okay, think about me the way you think of mm, God. Uh, you know, just, just honor me the way you'd honor God. Is that asking too much? Uh, you know, just treat me the way you treat God. Think about me the way you think of God. Come on now, give me some R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you something else. Unless you honor me as you honor God, you ain't honoring God. That's what Jesus says. Think about that. <laughs> Th- thank you for the timely sound effects there. Uh, take care of the intestinal issues, dude. <laughs> and see... And this is such an important point. This is such an important point. We have all this stuff out there where people, you know, want to respect Jesus and they want to say he's, he's good and he's, he's wise and he's ascended and, and, and maybe an archangel. But see, if you understand the New Testament right, if you're dealing honestly with the evidence, the Bible doesn't give you that opportunity. Uh, given the claims that Jesus makes for himself, you've got one of two decisions. Either he's telling the truth, in which case you should bow your knee, or if he's not telling the truth, he's a blasphemer. He's not good, he's evil. 
See, that's the dilemma you're put into. Either decide that he's evil or decide that he is, in fact, the Lord God incarnate. But this middle ground, which is out there all over the place, is just isn't, it's not reconcilable with the New Testament. The Jews understood what was going on. They understood what he was saying because it says in verse 18 of that chapter, they picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because he was making himself equal with God. If you make yourself equal with God, you are God. And the Jews understood that that's what he was doing. And Jesus did this kind of thing all over the place. In John chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one. So again, the Jews understand what he's saying. This guy's off his rocker. He's evil. He's demonized. And so they pick up stones to stone him because that was the punishment, prescribed punishment for blasphemy. I and the Father, he's saying, are, are, are one. Uh, we, 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 uh, we, we are both to be considered uh, uh, as, as sharing in divinity. And of course, that is just as offensive to first century Jews as anything could be. Next verse, John 14, and one I quote all the time here because I think it's so crucial. If you've been around here for any length of time, you've heard me quote this one. Uh, you know, Jesus is talking about the Father, and so Philip says, Jesus, will you just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied? And then Jesus says, Philip! You don't get it yet, do you? If you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? Now think about this. What would you think of me if, if uh, you know, somebody up here is, uh, Marcel goes, Greg, uh, you know, you've been talking about God. Will you just, like, show us God? Yeah, just show us God. And so then I go, all right. <laughs> hey. If you see me, you see the Father. You know, why then? Don't go looking to the right of me or the left of me or above me or below me to find God. Just keep your eyes focused on me. That's what Jesus is going, that's what's going on here. And either he's telling the truth, in which case, bow your knee, or he is at best a lunatic, if not evil. But this middle ground, this middle position just isn't uh, available to you given the evidence uh, of, uh, that, that we find throughout the New Testament. If you see me, you see the Father. This is the definitive revelation of God in Scripture. So throughout the Bible, Jesus makes these claims, which if he's not telling the truth, uh, put him in a category not as the highest human being, but uh, beneath other human beings. Some people would say things like this. Well, of course Jesus reveals God because uh, uh, we're all supposed to reveal God. People should be able to see God in all of us. Some of you have heard lines like that. So Jesus is just saying what, what, what should be true of all of us. If you see me, you see God. But if you look at the context here, that interpretation is simply impossible. Uh, Jesus is saying something distinctive here. This isn't like a, a, a universal thing. Uh, if you look at four verses before this, in verse 6 of, of chapter 14, Jesus says, Folks, I am the way, singular, the truth, singular, the life, singular. No one goes to the Father except through me. Why? Because if you see me, you see the Father. I'm the doorway to the Father. I'm the manifestation of the Father. I'm the revelation of the Father. I'm sorry, but you're probably a really good person, but that ain't true about you. Yes, you're supposed to be godly. You're supposed to you know, reflect the character of God, but you are not God incarnate. He is. That's the difference. And our attitude toward Jesus has to reflect that. So the title of God is applied to Jesus. The claims of Jesus show that, in fact, he's God incarnate. But you also find this interesting phenomenon. Things that can be said only about God in the Old Testament are ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament. Here's one classic example. In, uh, in, in Isaiah 44, Yahweh, or, or Jehovah, and Jehovah, by the way, is just, uh, it, it's an 11th century rendition of Yahweh. And I say that only because Jehovah Witnesses make a big point that you've got to say Jehovah, not Yahweh. But there's absolutely no evidence for that. Uh, no one was saying Jehovah until the 11th century. But that's a different message. Let's move on. 
Isaiah 44, verse 6, this is what the Lord says. Israel's king, the Lord, king, the redeemer, the Lord almighty. Okay, we're talking about God here. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. So lock it in. The one who says, I'm the first and the last, uh, is God. Only God can say that. There isn't any other God aside from the one who says, I'm the first and I'm the last. Amen. Now you go to the New Testament. Look what you find. Book of Revelation. I am the Alpha. This is Jesus talking here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who is, and Alpha is just the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter, so it's his way of saying on the beginning and the end. Uh, who is and who was and who is to come. I am the Almighty. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. This is Jesus talking. I am the living one. And in case you're not sure it's Jesus, listen to this. I was dead. That can only be said about Jesus. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus Christ says what only Yahweh, what only Jehovah can say. I am the first and I am the last. Yeah, I, I, I allowed myself to be killed, but I rose from the dead and I am alive forevermore. And that means he is one with the one true God. An angel can't say that. Archangel can't say that. Muhammad Gandhi can't say that. Buddha can't say that. Muhammad can't say that. Lao Tzu can't say that. Oh, they say some good things. I'm not against that. But they can't say what he just said. And what he just said is, 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 the, is, is a quote from God. And so the only proper response to the Lord Jesus Christ is to acknowledge him as being the God that he is. He says the same thing in Revelation 22. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus... Just so you know that it's Jesus talking. Have sent my angel to you to, uh, to give you this testimony for the churches. Jesus is the first and the last, and beside him, praise God, there is no God. Uh, you find this throughout the New Testament. Things that are said only about Yahweh are applied to Jesus. For example, in the Old Testament, you read that, uh, Jesus is, uh, or that Yahweh is the only creator, Psalms 33. But in the New Testament, you find that Jesus is the creator, John 1 and Colossians 1. In the Old Testament, you find that uh, Yahweh is the only Savior, and he is God. In the New Testament, Jesus is portrayed as the only Savior. In fact, the word Jesus means Yahweh saves. He is Yahweh in a saving mode. We could put it like that. In the Old Testament, you find that Jesus or Yahweh is the only judge of the earth, Isaiah 33 and all over the place. But in the New Testament, you find in Matthew 25 and elsewhere that Jesus is the, the judge of the earth. The one who plays the role of judge, the one who plays the role of savior, the one who plays the role of creator is God and Jesus, which tells you that Jesus is God. Another way, the final way that we'll talk about here that, that we find that Jesus is God, the Messiah, the Lord's Messiah is the Lord himself. Another way that we see this in the New Testament, in some ways this is the most surprising, is that people in the New Testament worship Jesus. They worship Jesus, and they pray to Jesus. Now, every Jew knew from the Old Testament that the only one to be worshipped is God. In fact, Jesus himself says, when Satan's tempting him, he says, you shall uh, worship and serve the Lord God, and him only shall you serve. Worship the Lord God, and him only shall you serve. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6 there. That God, throughout the whole Old Testament, drove this home. There's only one God, and therefore only one is to be worshipped. You can respect people, but you don't worship them. You only worship God. Every Jew knew this, which is why when you find 
uh, in ancient Judaism and even in the, in the Bible. When a human being, uh, when, when some human beings start to worship another human being, if that human being who's being worshipped is Jewish, they call a stop to it right away. Because to not do that is to be guilty of blasphemy. It is idolatry. So for example... You may know the story of, of uh, Peter and Cornelius. Peter gets this revelation. He's supposed to go preach to Cornelius. Cornelius is a pagan. He doesn't understand anything about the Bible or whatever. But he gets a revelation from God because he's got an open heart, and God says, I'm going to send you a messenger who's going to tell you the way of salvation. Peter shows up at the door, and then Cornelius, being a pagan who doesn't know much, he, he falls down at the feet of, of uh, Peter, and he starts to worship him. But Peter's a Jew, and he knows better. So Peter says... He raises him up off the ground. He, he yanks him up, and he says, Stop that! Stand up. I, too, am just a man. Here's lesson 101 of gospel truth. You don't worship people. I'm just a people, so don't worship me. And there's a sense of urgency in Peter's voice. It's like, if I let you do this, i got to start looking out for thunderbolts because this ticks God off. So I, you pull a stop to it. And anybody who's at all godly, if there's any sense that people are starting to respect them or reverence them, crossing a line, where it's starting to turn into worship, it is their duty. And this is what they do if they're at all godly, is they put a stop to that yesterday. That ain't going to happen here. So human beings forbid uh, themselves to be worshipped. You find in the Bible, angels forbid themselves to be worshipped. In the book of Revelation, for example, uh, you know, John's getting all these funky visions, you know, and so he's a little bit disoriented. And uh, so then Angel shows up who's radiating and, you know, very impressive. And so John, being in sort of a semi-apocalyptically induced state, uh, he says, it says here, I fell at his feet to worship him. He thought it was God. But the angel said to me, do not do it. Stop. I am a fellow servant with you. Worship God. And there's a sense, there's a sense of urgency in the voice. Don't do that. Dude, you're trying to get me killed or something. Stop it right now. I'm a fellow servant with you. We both worship God. Not me, not you. We worship God. Later on in the book of Revelation, Revelation 22, same thing begins to happen. Um, John's again disorientated, so he's, there's another very impressive angel, and uh, the one who says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and seen, seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. Stop it. I am a fellow servant with you. I'm a fellow servant with you. So human beings say, don't worship me. Angels say, don't worship me. But now let's look at Jesus. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 that when God brings his firstborn into the world, the word firstborn there is a uh, Jewish phrase, meaning the one who's going to get the inheritance. When he brings in the one who's going to be the heir of the whole world, he says this, let all the angels of God worship him. Let all God's angels worship him. Lock this in. Humans are forbidden to be worshipped. Angels are forbidden to be worshipped. But when Jesus comes into the world, God commands the angels to worship him. What does that tell you? It tells you he ain't no angel. He ain't no angel. Uh, he is far, far, infinitely far above that. He is one with the Lord God Almighty. In Jesus' life, people worshipped him, and he didn't stop them. In Matthew 28, for example, once he's uh, risen from the dead, it says, Suddenly Jesus greeted them, uh, met them, and said, Greetings. And uh, they came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. And then again in verse 17, uh, Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Now, did Jesus do what Peter did? Stop that! Did Jesus do what the angel did? Say, stop that! No. He let it happen because it was appropriate. In fact, 
we saw earlier where he basically commands it when he says, honor me the way you honor the Father. And the only way you're really honoring the Father is through worship. So the only way we honor the Son is through worship. Over and over again we find in the New Testament that Jesus is not, uh, is not an archangel, is not a guru, is not an ascended master, is not anything of the sort. Uh, he is the Lord God Almighty. Now he's fully human as well. But he's God in human flesh. God living out his life as a human being. The evidence is absolutely overwhelming. And uh, so we only see Jesus appropriately when we're seeing him as God. And the decision you've got to make is, 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 is this. Is he telling the truth, in which case you bow your knee to him? Or is he lying, in which case you should see him not as a good human being, but in fact as an evil human being, or at best a crazy human being? That's what's on the table. That's the decision you have to make. It leaves us with, with three questions here, and I end with these. Question number one, do you, ask yourself this question honestly, do you honor Jesus the Messiah appropriately? Which is to say, do you honor him as God? Do you apply to your life and to your thought and to your speech and to your worship the truth of Jesus when he says in John 5, 23, honor me as you honor the Father? Is there any part of your brain which sees Jesus sort of as a second-class deity, as something lower on the rung. I encourage you to collapse that thought, collapse that impression, and enthrone Jesus where he belongs. Colossians 1 says, above all things. Above all things. Enthrone him as absolute Lord of your life, deserving of all your praise. That's why today we sang so many songs to him. That's appropriate. We pray to him. That's appropriate. It wouldn't be to, for any other human being. It would be utterly it'd be blasphemous, but for Jesus it's totally appropriate. Second question we need to ask is this. Is your mental picture of God defined by Jesus, the Lord's Messiah? Now I ask this question a lot around here because your picture of God in your mind is the single most important thing in your being. It will determine your attitude towards God, the quality of your kingdom life and whatnot. Is Jesus your picture of God? Do you apply to your life consistently the truth of Jesus when he says, if you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? Jesus isn't to be part of our picture of God. He's to be the total of our picture of God. Is that true in your life? Have you collapsed all the polluting elements in your picture of God that maybe you inherited from your upbringing, from church life, from the world, from religion? And do you dare to believe that God looks this lovely? This really is the heart of God. Purify your picture of God by making him Christ-centered. God looks like Jesus Christ. If you see me, you see the Father. And the third question I want us to just leave here with is this. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, do you have the gusto, the integrity to walk out of here saying he's evil? And if you're not going to say he's evil, will you say he is God? Those are your choices, really. Even more to the point, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, ask yourself this question. How do you explain the faith of the early disciples? Now think about this. The most fundamental aspect of Jewish religion and Jewish culture in the first century was that God's up there, humans are down here, and never the twain shall meet. Here comes along Jesus Christ, and what we find is the disciples of Jesus are saying that this guy who they hung out with, this guy who they knew, in the case of James, this guy who is my brother, he is God. He's Yahweh on earth. Question, what could possibly have convinced them 
of that truth. Convince them against all of their cultural and religious presuppositions. What would it take to convince them that a fellow human being was God on earth? No, they tell us what convinced them. They say, well, he made the divine claims for himself, and normally we'd stone a guy for doing that, but then he lived this incredible life, and he did these miracles, and he raised from the dead. He was risen from the dead, so we have no choice but to believe him. They tell us what convinced them. If you don't think they're telling the truth, what is your explanation? And you really do need an explanation. If you accept the testimony of the disciples, everything's explained. It would take something that radical to convince them that a man was God. But if you're not going to believe that Jesus made these divine claims and or that he did these miracles and or that he rose from the dead, if you're not going to believe that he was telling the truth, then what's your explanation? And if you don't have a plausible one, and I can save you a whole lot of time by telling you that you don't, <laughs> if you don't have a plausible one, then the only reasonable thing to do is to bow your knee, surrender your heart, and enthrone them as Lord of your life. Will you close your eyes to pray? Kingdom people, be praying, because I want to ask anybody who's here who hasn't surrendered your life to Christ, I want to give you a chance to do that. Maybe right now for the first time you see how it, really the evidence uh, points in this, in this direction. Maybe you've respected Jesus. Maybe you've seen him as a wise teacher, and I don't have any doubt that your heart hasn't been sincere. But maybe now for the first time you see it differently. Or maybe you used to see it this way and then you sort of let go of it and now it's time to come back. If you're in this auditorium in an unsurrendered state and you want to right now surrender your life to Christ, would you just raise your hand? I'm going to pray for you from up here. Just raise your hand. Wonderful. Praise God. Up here, back there, a number of people in the middle here. Uh, to my left. Just raise your hand so I can see it. We're just going to pray with you and then we're all going to join in prayer together. Over there, I see that hand. It's about surrendering to Jesus. Where you say, I, he is deserving of every ounce of my life. Anybody else? Okay, we're going to pray this prayer. Now, this prayer isn't magic. This isn't like a fire, you know, it's, it's a get out of hell free insurance card. This is a commitment of your heart. It's like taking a wedding vow. So don't pray it unless you mean it. But the Bible says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you shall be saved. So let's all pray this together because we're doing this as a community. Pray it verbally. Heavenly Father, I confess that you are God, that I am a sinner, and I'm in need of forgiveness. But I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, is God, is Savior. And I now acknowledge that what he did on Calvary he did for me. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive me and to reign in my life. I surrender my life over to you right here and right now. And I pledge to live for you to the best of my ability with your help the rest of my life starting right now. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Yes. Hallelujah. Yes. Amen. Praise God. That's wonderful. Okay, amen. Now you who prayed that prayer, that wasn't the end. That wasn't the arrival point. That was the first baby step. I want to encourage you to take the next baby step right now. It will take you two minutes. Very important. Up here to my right and your left, there's a table and there'll be a person up here who wants to just give you some literature, a Bible and some other things to help you begin to live out the commitment you just prayed. 
how to live with him really as the Lord and God of your life. If you're here and you have any uh, need whatsoever you'd like to have prayed for, our prayer teams will come forward right now and they'd be happy to spend some time in prayer with, in prayer with you. Go out and build the kingdom and Lord, we pray that you'll send some Jehovah Witnesses to our door this week. Amen. Love you guys. God bless.